0: You're listening to the Heart and Soul Podcast with Katherine Banco. I'm on a mission to celebrate breakthrough, empowerment, and shameless living in the lives of women everywhere. Join me and let's live unashamed together. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 31 of season three of Heart and Soul. I am thrilled to be joined by Catherine Metzlar. Um, She is a registered dietitian and the founder of Brave Space Nutrition, and she also is a certified intuitive eating counselor, which is a topic that we've definitely covered on the podcast. But I've been following her for some time on Instagram and really gotten a lot out of, especially your reels, uh, which. We could do a whole (laughs) podcast on reels in general because I am so bad at them, but, um, yeah, she's just really informative and like a really gracious way towards women about their bodies and about, um, looking at food in a freeing way instead of something that can enslave us. So I just knew she would be the perfect guest for heart and soul. So thank you so much, Catherine, another Catherine for joining me today.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. I'm so honored to be here. The meeting of the two Catherines. I know we've
0: been like (laughs) emailing back and forth. And like the only thing I can tell that tell the difference between us is the way we spell our names. (laughs) Totally. Totally. (laughs) There's so many ways to spell Catherine. Every time I go to like Starbucks, it's a different spelling on my cup and it's never right but it's yes fine.
1: <laughs> yes yes absolutely the beauty of having a name that can be spelled multiple ways
0: <laughs> totally um well um yeah i just really want to hear more about your personal before we dive into like your business which is a awesome topic in itself i kind of just want to hear more about your personal relationship with your body and maybe if you've ever struggled with body image and how you kind of got to a place of healing from that, which eventually led to where you are today, obviously, but Mm -hmm. just kind of backtrack a little bit to let Mm -hmm. listeners in on your story.
1: Yeah. As I like to say, park the bus and back it up in the work that I do with clients when we're like, wait, 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 we need to know more. (laughs) So I I actually think the two are interconnected and we'll get to the business part, um, in, in a bit, but the whole reason why I ended up going to get my master's and study nutrition was because of my eating disorder. So we'll take again, park the bus and back it up. Um, I grew up in a household, um, when I was younger that I considered to be really food positive. My mom was really intentional about bringing variety of foods into the house, not having food rules. There was structure, there was mealtimes. And I played sports as well. And so I like to think, especially in retrospect that I was protected because of sports. And I know that that is not always the case. There are plenty of people. They play sports and the opposite happens. They end up, um, you know, being really inundated and saturated with diet culture and dieting as a way to control their body to enhance performance, but that was not the case. There was a lot of just encouragement of eating and eating lots and eating to fuel. Um, and so, I think for a while, I thought I was protected, which I was in in many ways. Um, and then, in addition to that, you know, just in retrospect, realizing and understanding that. Despite the things that I experienced, I also hold a uh, thin privilege. I had thin privilege back then. And so I was even more protected by lots of things and other privileges. Um, so really what happened was I went off to college. My body changed. I gained some weight. I was told that that was bad. And that's when I started my first diet. Um, and it was a diet that was incredibly restrictive. Um, uh, it was Atkins. And so I was eating, you know, almost very little carbohydrates. That summer, I started engaging in purging behaviors. That continued. That stopped a little bit. That went back and forth between binging and then exercise purging, and that continued on and on. And as we know, with disordered eating and eating disorders, they tend to kind of ebb and flow. And so there were periods of time, for example, like when I was um, uh, studying in a different country, where things things got better because I had support, because I had other people cooking for me, um, that there was still disordered behaviors that were happening, but not quite to the same degree. So if someone had caught me during that time, for example, um, I might not have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, or people maybe wouldn't have noticed or known. and then, you know, little by little, it was one thing after another. So I went uh, away, I came back, um, and I was plunked back into the same environment that I had been in before, which is university campus environment, which is super toxic. And mm-hmm. so I started engaging with disordered behaviors that ended up transitioning into more restriction. Um, I adopted a vegetarian lifestyle um, in the name of ethics, and I, which I get that there's nuance there. Um And then that just continued on and on. And then that spiraled into what I'm now able to say, identify and diagnose myself because I'm a clinician now um, with orthorexia. So my behaviors got more and more restrictive and it kind of coincided with this shift in our culture and definitely on the internet with this hyper obsession with health and wellness. And so I started reading more and cutting out more foods and cutting out more food groups. And I became obsessed, obsessed Mm. with food, obsessed about the purity, quote unquote, purity of my body. Um, And because I was thinking about food all the time, which we know is a really common symptom of being hungry and not having enough nourishment, um, I just thought, well, this is what I'm meant to do. I'm so enthused by this. You know, all I want to do is talk about it. And simultaneously, because we exist in a culture where all of the behaviors, for example, with orthorexia are elevated, I was being praised for essentially the eating disorder. Um, and so people were coming to me for advice and guidance. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm considered okay. an expert and I'm not even an expert yet. So I just thought, well, you know what? I the, I just need my credentials. That's it. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get my credentials. And I'm going to teach people to eat the way that I eat.
0: So at this time, when you decide to go to school, you are still in the thick of disordered eating. Yeah.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Fully in my eating disorder at the time. Absolutely. And no one blinked an eye. There was no one at any point that was like, hey, I'm concerned about you. Or, you know, food is taking up a lot of headspace or movement. Exercise is taking up a lot of headspace can we talk about that? Or um, I'm seeing that this is kind of your only thing that you're interested in or that you've got going on. Uh, but that, that didn't that didn't happen. And I think that there's a lot of reasons. One is the aforementioned because those behave, oftentimes in many eating disorders, not all of them, uh, the behaviors that we engage in are promoted in this culture, right? Like food restriction, like certain um, exclusion of food groups and inclusion of other food groups, uh, certain exercise behaviors, et cetera. But also because um, uh, there's a lot of stigma around eating disorders and, quote unquote, what eating disorders look like. And so because I didn't fit the picture of what the media presents as what eating disorders look like, which tend to be very, in a very, very thin body, um, they're able-bodied, they're usually cisgendered, white, etc. Um, while I meet some of those, I didn't meet the very, very thin part, despite, you know, holding thin privilege. And so people just thought, oh, well, she's just healthy.
0: Yeah. That's really important to note too, is a lot of times someone is struggling with an eating disorder, but it might not look how the media has portrayed on the outside. You have to be bone thin your ribs have to be popping out. You have to look frail. In fact, most people who I know who have had eating disorders, it's been the opposite and they can almost fly by undiscovered because of that. And I think it's really important to kind of s- smash that status quo of what an eating disorder quote unquote should or shouldn't look like because yeah. if it's disordered in your mind then it's an eating disorder, you know. 100%. 100%.
1: And you know, it um it is a is a real indication of um, how things need to change culturally, right? And we could get into that in so many different ways. Um, but one of them is really, like you said, smashing this uh, bias or assumption that the, the culture and media keeps uh, perpetuating. Because as you said, there's actually only a small percentage of people that present as being in very thin bodies um, that, that have eating disorders. We know that eating disorders come in all different sizes and that we can't tell by looking at someone what kind of eating disorder they have, that there there is um, anorexia exists in people in large bodies and small bodies, bulimia exists in people in all size bodies, orthorexia, other specified feeding and eating disorder, right? We could go on and on that there's no um, body size that um, represents what a quote-unquote eating disorder should look like or does look like.
0: Yeah, I also think it's really important to note and I you you mentioned this um back in the beginning of your story that there's very blurred lines between um labeling it as a certain eating disorder like anorexic or bulimic or orthorexic. And I know that with my personal story it was very blurry and because it was blurry I almost used that as like a mechanism to justify that I didn't have an eating disorder because it went from restricting to binging the next day to the next week over exercising. Um, and so I was like, well, it's so blurry that it can't be an eating disorder. You know, it's just the way I live my life (laughs) and I didn't see it as disordered because I could hide it with the next thing. So that blurred line thing is really important to note if you are listening and you kind of dabble in all areas and are justifying that as, well, I don't have a technic technical eating disorder. It, you do, <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but you do have disordered eating mm-hmm. and it just, it presents itself in various ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's such a good point. I mean, I think
1: it's important to note that I have all of this knowledge now, not only because of my own experience, but also because this is the work that I do. Right. But I was never formally diagnosed with an eating disorder. I never, mm-hmm. as I say, like had the eating disorder fairy come over me and be like, yeah, I, I, I bless you or I grant you with an <laughs> eating disorder. And I say that because um, I think for a lot of folks and for me in retrospect, it can feel really validating. Uh, for for many to be like, oh, this is serious. This is something um, that isn't just you know uh, sort of thinking about food too much or thinking about exercise or whatever ways we um, dismiss our own suffering and struggle. Mm. Uh, and so, I think it's important to note that you and your listeners um, do not need an eating disorder diagnosis to pursue support to get help. I believe that if there is chaos in the brain, you deserve support. And if you're questioning or wondering, like, is there something going on? There probably is something going on. Yeah. And prevention is where it's at. So even if you're not at the place where um, you need, for example, a higher level of care or where you need more intense support, intensive support, it's much better to get support earlier so that you don't get to that place where, for example, you don't have a choice or you're really sick or your labs are off or it's impacting all areas of your life.
0: Yeah. One thing that I say to my clients through exercise, which before I get to that, actually, you said something, used a term that I've never heard and it really just made everything clear to me. And what I used to do is purging through exercise I, I, I don't know why I couldn't coin that. I, I mean, I would over exercise. I would say that, um, but it's really a purge because you're trying to eliminate the calories that you consumed by burning those calories in the gym or outside running or whatever your choice of exercise is. But anyways, I, I wanted to circle back to that because I really, I don't like that term, but I like that I can put a label on it and like, it makes more sense to me in that way. Um, but yeah, with, with exercise, I, I always tell my clients like, as I'm coaching them, that the reason I am kind of (laughs) coaching them in this way, it's not just for, for them to experience movement in a joyful way, but also for them to not have to get to the place of rock bottom. Like I did in order to find freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of women, Maybe subconsciously wait until they get to that rock bottom place before they start to make those healthy changes in their life, whether that's seeking a professional for help or deleting a calorie counting app or taking a break from the gym or whatnot, it's usually they usually wait for a rock bottom moment. And it would be so beautiful if we could just take those steps proactively before hitting that rock bottom moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what is the beautiful part of having personal trainers like you and other personal trainers that I know, where not only, uh, you have the ability to be able to recognize when things quite aren't, aren't quite right, um, to maybe refer out, not, um, not to say you necessarily have to stop working with them depending on the situation, but rather just to, to bring on more support or to be that person that kind of guides someone to getting the support that they might need. Um, and also to, as you know, uh, probably even better than I do, there's so much toxicity in the exercise world and in this culture, right. As part of diet culture. Um, and so, yeah, to have personal trainers like you that are, that are safe, that are safe for people to go to is so important.
0: And to be able to recognize, and I'm sure you can do this on, um, a nutrition level way better than I ever could is to be able to recognize when someone might have a negative behavior around food or exercise, but they don't even realize it yet, but you can pick up on the signs. And so, because you're someone that they can in or trust, you can make that decision I'm not going to train you for four to five times a week. Like we're Mm going to back off. We're going to do three times a week at 30 minutes instead of five times a week at an hour. we're going to change the type of movements we do, because it seems like the motive behind your movement has changed and you can probably assess and see those signs and symptoms in your clients as well. Like Mm -hmm. the way you talk about this food or the way you label this experience I can, I can sense that this is not a positive way of looking at it. And so we can re re kind of wire your brain around this now. (laughs) So that's why having a professional to help you is so important if you can afford it, or if you have someone in your life who um, has that experience to at least have that person hold you accountable in those Mm -hmm. things. Yeah.
1: I think the, the part that you said of affordability is important that not everyone, of course, has access to individual support or for example, higher level of care in the case of eating disorders, but even just for disordered eating. Um, and there are lots of different layers I think of access that we want to consider, right? So if individual support isn't possible, maybe someone is looking to groups, if groups aren't affordable, um, maybe they're looking to free resources to start like books, like podcasts, like yours. Um, and other things as a way just to begin their journey in the wondering of, is there something going on here that is asking for my attention? Why is food taking up so much headspace? Why is exercise feeling so punitive? And why do I experience so much anxiety when I'm not working out? And some of the other, so many of the other things that we begin to ask ourselves when we're most in, in it, when we're most stuck in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I let you finish your story, (laughs) just realizing (laughs) we circled back to so many things, but at what point after you became certified, did it hit you that, oh, I actually struggle with disordered eating or eating disorders, or like, at what point did you have your like light bulb moment?
1: So when I went to graduate school, that's when everything really started to happen Because it was the first time that I was challenged around my beliefs, and graduate school does that anyway, it's sort of the nature of it. And we, as part of my master's of science, had to start reading, master's of science in nutrition, had to start reading research, dissecting it, writing about it, getting tested on it. And I was confronted with all of these beliefs that I was told via Dr. Google that I believed, you know, Google was gospel. And so if someone said it on some blog somewhere and quoted some part of some research, then I believed it to be true when in fact now I know and I'm able to, for example, read research and dissect things in a very different way, look at it critically, that so much of the research that's presented is usurped as a way to promote or um, encourage whatever it is that person is saying. And so we want to look at research um, with some skepticism, while also um, holding that there's some real value in research, right? I'm able to to say that now. So it really started with graduate school, just my my belief system being almost completely broken down as as something I believe to be true, and I was like, oh man, this is this is not true, and I I um, have been led to believe things that aren't based in science, mm. and. That, in addition to becoming more educated about eating disorders in my program, learning that there were a lot of similarities and beginning to just to, to start to wonder, um, and then that led me to seek out support during that time. I was like, something something is not right. It hasn't been right for a long time. I'm super anxious. Food takes up tons of headspace. Basically, I'm left to very few foods that feel safe to me. Mm. And so that began my journey of getting support from a therapist, uh, from a dietitian for some time, and then just continuing my therapy. I do think that in retrospect, I wish I would have maybe done it a little bit more intensely because it definitely prolonged things. I don't know if I'd recommend doing it the way that I did it, but this is my this is my journey, and this is this is where I ended up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, That foods that feel safe to me, that concept really stuck out to me. It's something that you actually posted a reel on this recently about labeling foods as quote unquote bad or quote unquote good, which I did for so many years. Um, I mean, I really think even after I had been through, well, I feel like I'm always recovering, but even I had been through the, after I'd been through the intensive recovery aspect of my eating disorder, I still had like this idea in my head that this is bad. This is good. Even if it was just like a very, you know, light label I put on things. And my husband and I were actually talking the other day about, um, how I used to be and he used to be as well. So scared of carbs. Um, you you know, we hear from the media, (laughs) carbs are bad. Carbs are the enemy, um, cut carbs out and you'll lose weight. And I found I was a, I was a really big runner. I still love to run. And it's definitely like my therapeutic form of exercise, not as long, but I used to run long distance and I would not eat carbs. And I was, I was using so much energy that I didn't have stored up. And then, it flipped for me. I started eating carbs because, you know, through recovery, I became less scared of that. And I found, I felt stronger. I could run longer. I mean, it was like, duh, <laughs> you know, carbs are energy, but that's a, that's just a specific example for me. And I think for a lot of women that we label something as bad that actually can be so good is so good for our bodies. If we learn how it helps us function day to day, Uh, my husband did the same thing. He's a type one diabetic and he, so carbs are actually hard for him to process, Mm -hmm. but he would kind of use that as a way to justify, well, then I don't have to eat carbs, but he can eat carbs. (laughs) He can eat them in different ways, or he can use his insulin. And he now is um, in this, he's in the best like mental and physical state of his life because he has he is way less afraid of, of food hindering his performance in the gym or hindering his performance just in the day to day with his diabetes, because he's learned that it actually can be a tool for him instead of this weapon against him. Um, so can you kind of, sorry, that was long-winded, but that's just my personal experience can you kind of speak into labeling foods as good and bad and what that does to our like actual brain, like how we process that? Yeah. So,
1: um, labeling foods as good and bad. First, I want to acknowledge that this is a really common experience for those that are listening. How could we not label things as good and bad, healthy, and not healthy, clean, and the opposing, you know, would be dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, considering the culture that we exist in. This is how we're taught to label foods. In fact, it usually starts at a very young age with our parents, caregivers, adults around us saying, don't eat that. That's bad for you. Eat more of this. That's good for you. That's not healthy. That is healthy. And parents are doing the best that they can. It's usually operating from a place of care and love. And the important thing here is that As young children, we cannot distinguish the difference between this is a quote-unquote bad food, as the adult is saying, from if I eat this food, I'm a bad person. Mm. Cognitively and developmentally, uh, we are not at the place to be able to distinguish that. So considering we get those messages over and over, I don't know, millions of times growing up, and then that carries over into adulthood, when we're eating foods that we label, for example, as bad... Not only does this induce a stress response, right, an anxious feeling, a fear of what is this going to do to my body that does have harmful health impacts, Um, it also induces a feeling for many of not only guilt of doing something wrong, but also shame, there's something wrong with me which is a really crappy cycle to be caught in because that mm-hmm. means that every time you're eating foods that are deemed bad, you're feeling like there's something wrong with your character as mm. a human when, when there's no place for morality with food. And in fact, it's incredibly oversimplified to define foods as good and bad because as you said there's also all kinds of things that impact these definitions we know that it's a ever-changing target that we uh, can't hit right so for example you mentioned carbohydrates i'm thinking if we were talking uh 20 years ago we would probably be talking about fats right? Because of the, um, time periods where fats were demonized and not to say that that isn't still there kind of, but, um, so much of it shifted to the demonization of carbohydrates where it wasn't like that before. Right. So it's, it's not defined. It's an ambiguous definition and it tends to impact our relationship with food, our relationship with ourselves really negatively Mm -hmm. and disconnects us, right? When we're labeling something, labeling foods as good and bad, I think the question that's left for me is like, well, what are, do you like the food? Do you not like the food? How does it make you feel? Right. It, it's, it's a really unhelpful way of labeling food. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. And I, I love that you touched on the shame part, because if you hear that something is bad, then when you do have that experience, and this was me so many times, I mean, I'm just thinking of like being with being at a girl's night and everyone wants to order a pizza. Mm -hmm. And that experience now, because of the shame I've built up in my head around pizza has become a bad experience when an experience with your girlfriends where you're laughing and enjoying, you know, girl talk should be a good experience, but the food made it feel bad and wrong to me. So it, it goes so much deeper than just, eating a food, it goes into your mind. It trickles into your experiences in life. Um, it takes away enjoyment from experiences in life. And I think removing those labels can really produce a lot of freedom for you outside of even just the kitchen. Absolutely. I say
1: all the time that a really helpful and powerful first step is paying attention to the language that you're using. Yeah, Because the language that we use impacts so much of how we move through this world and in particular when we're talking about foods the way that we label foods and what you said is such an important point which is when food is and food groups or certain kinds of foods are demonized and we eat them it takes up so much headspace so Mm -hmm. we're not actually able to participate in this one very short life that we have and I think it's easy to dismiss that uh, to say, oh, well, it's just a hang out with friends or quote unquote, health is more important, right? There's all kinds of ways that we could probably dismiss um, this, this the, the, what some describe as a sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. In the name of um, a certain kind of body or uh, in the name of health. But um, when you get on the other side of recovery from disordered eating and eating disorders, you realize just how much you were suffering, mm-hmm. how miserable you were, how disconnected you were from the people around you, which is a really poor quality of life, mm-hmm. right? That we justify these things in the name, or we're told to um, do them in the name of health. And yet when we look back, it's like, oh, well, actually I, I was really quite unhealthy and unable to participate in my life.
0: And it strips you from an experience. Like I'm thinking personally for me, I had the opportunity to travel Europe with three of my best friends for three weeks. And during that time, I was still struggling. And when I think about that trip, it's hard for me to think about the amazing memories we built in this beautiful country because I think of the things I was hiding, the routes I was mapping out in the town that I could sneak out early and go run in the morning, the, um, laxatives I was packing in my purse so that I could have one before we would eat a big meal, knowing it would be out of my system later. I mean, it's sad that I have those memories associated with a trip that should be like a once in a lifetime experience, you know, and it's stripped, it's stripped of that. Now that little joy that you could have experienced had your mind just felt free.
1: I lived in Europe for years and traveled as well. And I often reflect very similarly to you, but some differences that I remember one time going back to visit, I lived in Italy and I lived in Spain, but I also traveled to different places. And I remember one of the trips I was going back to Italy, I packed a whole separate suitcase full of foods that Mm. were safe to me. And the not only is that like a painful memory or just a tragic memory, But it's also absurd, like I'm able to say that again in retrospect, going to a country, both going to and living in a country that is abundant with some of the most beautiful, incredible food in the world. And here I was in my eating disorder, packing a whole separate suitcase full of food. And I feel so similarly to you that I was most in my eating disorder when um, I was living, in, in this case, in Italy. And so I wasn't able to experience the culture and the food and the ease of existence, not to mention the other countries that I was in, which is a real bummer. It's tragic. You know, how much, how much life disordered eating and eating disorders take from you. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. I mean, first of all, Italy has just the best food of all time. (laughs) And thankfully I had the opportunity to go back to Europe when my husband and I were dating with his family and I would, I had felt free from those restrictions and I got to experience a week in and in that country and enjoying it. So I got to see the difference and, and hindsight's 2020, 20, right. And look back on the years before when I was in this same country and it was totally different experience for me because I didn't allow myself to live freely and eat the good food and enjoy all that Europe had to offer. And that goes for something as simple as a pizza night with girlfriends too. Those are memories that you don't you don't get back. And if your mind is flooded or clouded with um, these negative thoughts or shame spirals, then you don't have that memory as a joyful one when your friends do, you know? Yeah, uh, the majority of the clients that I work with, when we talk about goals in
1: the beginning of what it is we're doing here, where are we heading? the most common goal is I want this crap by crap, I mean food and body. Um, And in this case food to take up less headspace. Yeah. I'm so tired of it taking up so much headspace. And I think sometimes it's difficult to say, well, what would you do if you had that headspace back or what kinds of things are you missing out on? Because when you're in it, it's incredibly normalized for you. You don't know a different way of living and existing that I think, you know, and, and let me know if this doesn't resonate with you, but I think I most certainly am able to say now on the other side of it, the kinds of things I was missing out on or the kinds of things that I'm able to access and do that I could not have identified before. And I yes. think that that is an important part of the process, right? Like as we heal, as we become renourished, nourished as we eat consistently, challenge food rules, challenge our relationship to exercise and on and on. And as we get more headspace, that's when we're able to see, oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah.
0: You're able to see it more clearly in those moments. I was so preoccupied with the way I looked or the, or what I ate that, that felt like the most important thing, not the experience. But now looking back, I'm like, man, I really didn't enjoy ages 22 to 25, <laughs> And that's sad. Those are some great ages in life, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 really love that the conversation pivoted that way because I'm sure there's a lot of our listeners who maybe haven't found that trigger for them or haven't found that recognizable moment where they realize their head is clouded and it might click with them now. Like, Oh, I actually don't enjoy girls nights or I don't enjoy going out to eat with friends. And that might be, um, just a light bulb moment for you as a listener to say, Hmm, maybe I need to dig deeper into this and figure out what the root of this is and how to heal from it. Um, what reminders can you give our listeners when, for when they have bad body image days? Cause we all have them, you know, we all have have days where we don't necessarily love the skin that you're in. And something I'm learning is the difference between loving and accepting your body. Um, but yeah, what, what are some reminders or some truths you can give our listeners for when they have those bad body image days?
1: I'm so excited that you brought body image up. If, if your listeners could see it, I am definitely smiling, thinking about this and not because it's not a challenging topic, just because I'm really passionate about it. And there's so much to say. So I love what you started with learning the differences, differences between, for example, what is presented as body love or body positivity and something like body acceptance. So when I have conversations about shifting or changing our relationship with our body, I often talk about the scaffolding that needs to take place. Similarly to when we're building a building, right? The scaffolding that's on the outside, that that helps us then add layers to it as we um, address the scaffolding or build the scaffolding, if you will. And so body acceptance most certainly is part of that, but that tends to be one that's um, a little bit later, hard for people to say, okay, I accept my body just as it is. And the offering is that there's so many other things on that scaffolding, which is um, body appreciation, right? What some call body neutrality, which sometimes are interchangeable. So appreciating our body and its parts for what it does for us, which doesn't mean that we need to like it, doesn't mean Mm. we need to love it. And in fact, there's some um, arguments that body love is just another way of objectification or self-objectification, which is also an important part of body image when we're talking about it, that there's this expectation that you need to love your body or that your body is beautiful just as it is. And it's like, why does your body need to be beautiful, right? That's just, let's, let's move away from that. And looping back to your point in terms of tips on what to do when you have a bad body image day. First, let's normalize the experience of having a bad body image day. The expectation is not that you like your body or love your body. You are going to have hard body image days. And in fact, even when you've done a lot of work like I have, and maybe you have as well on shifting and changing your relationship with your body, it doesn't mean that I love my body or I look at my body every day and I'm like, yes, let's do the damn thing. (laughs) that it's really about building our capacity to tolerate discomfort hmm. without uh, reacting to that by engaging in behaviors that are, are harmful for our body. So for example, a really common thing when we're having a bad body image day or bad uh, negative body image day is to engage in restrictive eating behaviors or to plan out the next diet or restriction. This often is a way to feel a temporary sense of uh, control, even though it's not lasting, which makes sense in the context of having a hard or bad body image day. I feel out of control. I don't like my body or I hate my body or I feel disgust around it. So I want to engage with something that either um, temporarily gives me a sense that my anxiety is decreased or makes me feel a sense of control, even though it's temporary, which both can be happening simultaneously. So the first tip is to not do that. To not plan out the next diet, to not engage in restrictive eating behaviors, because it doesn't resolve anything right. and only keeps us stuck in the cycle of more restriction, uh, which is unsustainable, which then leads to usually binging, which then leads to more shame, which then leads to, you know, we just keep getting stuck in that cycle. Yeah. So that's the first tip. The second tip is if you um, are able to, engage in tools that soothe your nervous system. When we are having a bad body image day, it usually means or is an indication of something else that's going on. Mm. Questions I often ask people when they have negative body image thoughts are two things. One, what is the story you're telling yourself about this? Yeah. And, And or two, what could this be distracting you from? Which sometimes is a hard thing to distill down and I'll walk clients through that in session. But usually when we distill it down and um, kind of walk our way through it, it usually leads to fear, fear of not getting love, not getting connection, not getting success, not getting uh, the things that someone values most or is important to them in their life. So knowing that we're feeling anxious, knowing that we're feeling fear when we're having a bad body image day, we want to do the best that we can to engage with techniques that we might have to soothe our nervous system. That might mean going on gentle walks, connecting with a safe other. That could be a partner, a friend, a community. It might mean um, really engaging your senses by, you know, using essential oils or certain lotions. It might mean, um, you know, surrounding yourself with pillows, using a weighted blanket. Right? I could go on and on about right. uh, nervous system techniques, but definitely something to keep in mind. In addition to that, I really like to offer and encourage to wear comfortable clothes. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> that there's nothing like wearing uncomfortable tight clothes on a bad body image day that will draw even more attention to the parts of yourself that you're really feeling agitated by or irritated by.
0: Yes. So, I'm very passionate um, about that. If you couldn't, yeah, tell. Yeah. <laughs> my face lit up. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why punish yourself by putting yourself into tight clothing, in particular on days that you're having a bad body image day? And I think the other thing is uh, to remind yourself that it is temporary, it's going to pass. And this is where I think the support of some kind of community is really helpful so that you can, whether it be a support group um, or a group online, or maybe even a friend or partner where you can just say, hey, I'm having a really hard time today and I just wanna talk about it, I don't need resolution. Yes, And they can support you through it without offering some kind of solution to, to fix, fix things. Cause that's also the temptation. Well, there's something wrong with my body. I don't like the way it looks. So I'm going to fix it. When in fact, shifting your relationship with your body is less about fixing and more about being with.
0: Yeah. That's really key too. I love what you said about, I don't need you to, to say anything. I just need you to hear me. Sometimes that's like what I need most in friendships (laughs) and I can tell, or maybe I'm wrong, but do you follow Brene Brown? Okay. Yeah. I follow her. I uh, have read her books, listened to her podcast. Yeah. Huge fan. Yeah. I love her. And one of the things that she says, and it was game changer for me is what is the story you're telling yourself in this moment? Cause it might necessarily not be about your body. It could be about something deeper and you're just taking it out on your body because it's something you can control. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a question that I tend to ask myself in times of anxiety in general is what's the story I'm telling myself and what is actually true. Uh, I, I do it in fights with my husband all the time. <laughs> like if I feel if I feel like less than or unlovable, what's the story I'm telling myself? And is he actually doing anything to reinforce that? Chances are, no. It's usually a root in my head that I've created um, and put on put this pressure on him. And he's like, I didn't even say anything. <laughs> you know, I didn't even do anything. And that's often what we do with our bodies is we put punishment on it without it even doing anything to harm us. It's just trying to support and nurture us. And I think the example you gave
1: is wonderful to think about um, how this applies to body image, right? Because I would imagine, and I don't assume too much, that the fights that you sometimes have with, with your husband are maybe in part rooted in your own lived experience, the kinds of things that have impacted you in terms of your family of origin, in terms of your culture, your own identities that come up because of um, maybe your own trauma experience, which we all have traumatic experiences. And that impacts it. And I think, you know, the parallels here with body image are that we exist in a dieting culture, in diet culture that has told us that there is not only something wrong with bodies, many bodies, there's something wrong with women's bodies. And in particular, there's something the most wrong with fat bodies and Mm -hmm. fat on the body. And so considering that we exist in a culture that is anti-fat, that has anti-fat bias, that then of course, impacts people's beliefs about their own bodies, that the fat on their body is somehow inherently wrong, or it means that they, it has some kind of significance, right? There's all kinds of things that this culture tells us about fat on our bodies or about fat bodies, that you are less intelligent, you're less deserving of healthcare, you're not as attractive, um, uh, the list could go on and on, which impacts, of course, on those bad body image days, you know, our beliefs, about our bodies, which are really just
0: internalized beliefs based on the system that we exist within, which is diet culture. Exactly. Yeah. We're being reinforced these messages all day long, sometimes without even realizing it, that no wonder we feel shame around these topics. You know, no wonder that this is a trigger or a piece of trauma for us. That's really important to know. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it can also, I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry that is targeting you all day long, whether you realize it or not, and they make money off of you (laughs) believing the lies that they tell you. And so if you're aware that those things are out there, then you can be more aware of how to block them out when they come up or how to fight back against them or what weapons you can use. Like you, like you said earlier, reminders for bad body image days. Maybe those are the times when you write something on your mirror that's true about you. Or when you, um, when you turn, get off social media for the day, delete your apps for a day when you wear comfy clothes, like maybe those are the days because you're aware of what those things are. Those are the days when you can be prepared and fight back.
1: And I think what's important to, in addition to being aware is that things are becoming more and more covert, like common diets right now. I'm not going to name one, H-Hanum, which, um, <laughs> you know, promotes itself. And I only say it as an example, cause I think it's an important one, one that's really popular right now and is incredibly harmful Yeah, that they promote themselves as being anti-diet and intuitive. And so diets are promoting themselves as being anti-diet or, um, you know, that they're not a diet, which makes it so confusing for your listeners, for the consumer of like, oh, well, they're saying the same things as, for example, I don't know, not the same, but similar things that I'm saying and I'm talking about. And so it's like, oh, this must not be This must not be a diet. And so I think that that's important for us to keep in mind and for your listeners to keep in mind that there are the more and more we call out diet culture, the more and more we say there's something wrong here and this is not okay, and it needs to change the more and more diets will become sneaky and disguise themselves as quote unquote health and wellness. When in fact, mm. they're just as much a diet as, you know, the Jenny Craig's and the Weight Watchers of the past. Right. And they also like promote it through their marketing techniques is like dieting, not being cool, which, you know, there has been a shift, but that doesn't mean that it's not still happening. It's just harder to spot now.
0: Yeah. You know what? When Noom when Noom first came out, I fell for their marketing. I looked them up. I was like, oh, well, it's you know psychologically better for me. It's not a diet. And then I looked more into as I looked more into it, which I would recommend everyone do their research. As I looked more into this app or this program, I was like, mm, no. <laughs> like there are so many things that pop up here that turn my sirens on for that this is not okay. Um, at least for me to consume or for anyone to consume, um, in the state that I'm in or the the story that I have. So I think, I'm really glad you brought that up as an eating disorder professional, I do not recommend
1: any go, anyone go on that diet. It's incredibly restrictive. The amount of energy or what some call calories that it's recommended is enough for uh, a toddler. It's, um, there's no eating disorder screening highly recommend that people stay away from it. Yeah.
0: That's something that's really important to note too, is the amount of calories that is often marketed to us as women, especially is, you know, 12 to 1500 calories a day. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is what a toddler is recommended to eat. And we are not toddlers. We are adults. We are women. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have much more to get through in the day. So we need more sustenance and we need more energy. And I, I felt a victim to that for three years, the 1200 calorie a day thing. I didn't go over it. In fact, I tried to go under it. Um, and that, if that's something that you're doing and you're listening and you are logging your calories and you are trying to get under this goal of 12 to $1,500 cause or $1,500, 1500 calories, because that's what the media has said. Stop. <laughs> We're here to tell you that's not true. Not true at all. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I felt like that was really like, I needed to say that because that's something that I fell victim to for so long.
1: Well, and so many people do, I, how how could we not, right? The calories are constantly talked about and we're told that this is the only way that we can engage with food, that it is not only the only way, but that it's something that we need to be doing in order to quote unquote control our intake and that there's a right amount of calories that you should be eating daily. When in fact, while we can, for example, estimate ranges for people We know that our energy needs, first of all, as you mentioned, are much, much higher as grown women uh, than what is recommended by many diets. Um, And also, we know that our energy needs change each day based on all kinds of things that are really hard to predict, right? It depends on, you know, for example, some injury, sickness, amount of exercise or movement, um, amount of sleep, Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. There's also so much, and this is, I think, a really important part of thinking about energy or what some call calories as being a really positive thing. I really want to, to shift the way that we see calories as yeah. being something really good and really positive and, think, and and something that we really want more of, um, that there is so much that your body is doing, even at rest, that requires so much energy. yes. We think that it's just about, oh, well, we, um, you know, we, we moved more, so therefore we need to, to eat enough or something along those lines. When in fact, um, our body needs energy for lung function, kidney function, temperature regulation, and on and on and on that, that it needs enough energy just when it's laying down and think about all the other things that our brain does, the ways in which we move us having this conversation right now, Yes, um, that we need energy. We need calories from food to sustain ourselves and our body so that our body doesn't start using itself in order to fuel, um, our body, which is what happens when we don't get enough nourish- nourishment from food. When we're not eating enough food, we start to get bone degradation, which is a really common outcome, right? So we, you know, that impacts us long-term, um, starts to break down muscle, um, and on and on and on.
0: You can't sleep at night. It's, Mm -hmm. it goes on and on. You're so right. I'm so glad you brought that up. Like, I love the idea of substituting the word calories for energy. Like just get rid of that word, (laughs) get rid of that word. It's energy. It's energy that your body needs, regardless of whether you worked out that day or not, you still need sustenance, um, just to live just to yes. live even a sedentary life. You need sustenance. Yes. Um, yes. so man, I could talk to you all day. I feel like you have so much wisdom on all these topics that I could dig deeper. I, I like want to have you back on the podcast, but it's, um, coming towards the end and I have <laughs> questions that I ask every guest and I want to make sure I can get to those before we wrap today. Um, the first question is what is something that you're currently obsessed with right now? It could be, a podcast, a TV show, um, a book, a food, something that you're like, I am loving this right now.
1: Maintenance phase. It's an amazing podcast, real big plug. Um, they are two, uh, journalists, reporters that talk all about, um, health fads and diets, but really they've are it's both informative and funny. They've got great humor, um, And there's this really great banter, but you learn a ton from it. And so I am just loving maintenance phase. Every time Uh, a new podcast episode comes up, I'm like,
0: listen, listen, listen. I'm definitely going to subscribe to that. I'm, I love podcasts. So, and, and and we talked earlier about not being able to afford certain services. And if you can't podcasts are a great way, there is now so much information out there that can really teach you things in a free way, (laughs) Um, and, and help you rewrite the narrative in your mind. And so, yeah, podcast for sure. That's awesome. Um, the second question is what is something that you're looking forward to in the rest of 2021?
1: Time off. Really? Yeah. Just a few weeks, which is, you know, we all need it. I have realized, which I think has been a common experience for many people, including myself, that because of the pandemic, it just, there wasn't a lot of time off. There weren't these naturally, um, natural breaks that tend to happen when we're living our life differently. And so, um, I'm taking a few weeks off and going to a friend's wedding on the East coast in Vermont and just going to kind of travel around with my partner. And I'm feeling really stoked about that.
0: That's amazing. That is so good. Uh, Especially when you're a business owner and you are always on the clock. <laughs> it's nice to carve out time where you're like, I am going to be off now. And it's so much harder to do when your your business is your baby. So I love oh, that yeah. you get to do that. Oh, um, yeah. okay, our third question is: what is something that you love about yourself?
1: Gosh, there's so many things. <laughs>
0: I love that.
1: Um, I love My ability to be present with difficult things, both for myself and for other people, Mm. to not waver in the face of um, things that I think many people have a difficult time being with, sitting with, which allows me then to experience parts of people and parts of myself that I think are both sometimes challenging and also really beautiful and regenerative and allow me and others to, to grow and feel connected. So yeah, if I had to choose one, I think it's um, my ability to be with the kinds of things that we consider to be uncomfortable or icky um, or that people don't really wanna think about or talk about.
0: Yeah. That's probably why you're so good at what you do too. Cause you're able to just sit in the discomfort of other people's, you know, struggles and provide a sense of comfort for them <laughs> during a chaotic mind space, you know, totally that's awesome. Totally. Okay. Last question is if you could leave our listeners, which is mainly women, I would say 99.9% <laughs> with one little piece of truth to end on today or to go home with, um, what would that be? I think
1: repeating what I said earlier, which is that if there is chaos in the brain, that you deserve support, no questions asked, that if food and exercise and body image is taking up a lot of your headspace, you deserve the opportunity to be able to have the space and time to unpack that, to to challenge that, to to create the kind of life that you want to be living. Yeah. No no questions asked. And what I would encourage people to do or your listeners is to reach out to people, right. To, to just have them have, have a chat with them, see what they think, um, see what their input is because by talking to a professional, you'll be able to get some more insight because so many of the people, for example, that I work with will come in and say, Oh, this isn't really a big deal. Or, I don't think this is disordered eating and I'm able to, you know, diagnose them with an eating disorder not that long after we start talking. So, um, if there's chaos in the brain, you deserve support.
0: That is so good. And something that hasn't been said. Uh, and so I love that you had an original thought for the end. That's awesome. (laughs) We didn't even get to touch on that's how good the conversation was. We didn't even touch on your business, brave space nutrition, but, um, you offer support virtually. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, offer support virtually. So um
1: I own Brave Space Nutrition, which is a private group practice in Seattle, Washington, but we work with clients all over the country and all over the world. I also run a body image support and learning group that the actual actually the next group will start in September. Awesome. Um, which is really exciting. There's a wait list now um, that's going. And then yeah, I also offer business coaching to weight inclusive health professionals.
0: That is amazing. Okay. So we're on the East coast. So a lot of our listeners tend to be on the East coast, but if they connected or resonated with you, then they can seek out your help virtually. And that's amazing. Totally. Seek out my help. Definitely, um, I would
1: encourage them to follow me on Instagram at Brave Space Nutrition. I am also on YouTube under Catherine Metzlar, and there are lots of educational and informative videos that I continue to add. So, again, talking about free resources as well as a place for people to start.
0: Yes, and I will link all of those links in the show notes so that listeners you can find it really easily. And Catherine, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're like a voice of reason. I feel like that all women need to listen to. So I'm thankful that um, you were a guest on heart and soul. You're welcome. I also forgot
1: to mention that I'm offering your guests and audience a free resource. Um, so it, it is seven tips on how to create peace with food when you are afraid of weight gain. And so, um, I'm sure you'll link that in the show notes. I will. Yes, A free, free guide, free resource for your audience that I want to offer. That's so
0: amazing. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. I'm pumped for that. They're going to definitely scoop that up. Download that. It's free people. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing holding you back. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to continuing this friendship and connection, um, for future things in, in, in the future. So thank you so much. Me too. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, listeners, we will talk to you next week. Bye.